Welcome to this BMJ COVID podcast. I'm Fee Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, recording this on Tuesday 8th December as the first doses of COVID-19 vaccine arrive in the UK. Today on the line, we have our three regular contributors. Uh, I'll ask them to say hello, Nizreen Alwan. Hi, I'm an Associate Professor in Public Health at uh, University of Southampton. Helen Salisbury. Hello, I'm a GP in Oxford. And Matt Morgan. Hi, I'm an intensive care doctor based in Cardiff. Great. Well, look, lovely to have you all with us. Um, how are we all doing? Matt, we've got um, restrictions in Wales, um, worries about cases going up. How are you all? Yeah, it's it's a tale of two halves in Wales. You know, today's a big day for everywhere because of the first COVID vaccine outside of a clinical trial. And I'm, I'm having my vaccine this afternoon. Uh, so I'm kind of hopeful and thankful and and all those things but i'm also realistic i guess are you going to be one of the first to get the vaccine on that i mean i I haven't heard of anyone yet yeah certainly today is the first day and you know there is a big program across the uk you know there's already been the first vaccination up in in coventry this morning by a lady called margaret keenan who's a 90 year old lady who received the first worldwide outside of a trial really Uh, but yeah one of the first uh, healthcare workers certainly in Wales to have it this afternoon but it's also tough you know cases are raging in the South Wales valleys there's discussions about new restrictions before Christmas for perhaps Neath and Swansea so the biggest risk of this vaccine really is probably complacency. How has um, confidence, do you think, in the vaccine um, gone since? uh, Well, I mean, I'd like to hear everyone's thoughts on this. You know, it was all looking good. And then this whole sort of jingoistic feeling about, about, um, you know, we were the first and and therefore the best. Helen, what do you feel about that in terms of public confidence? I think it's very difficult to tell at the moment. Um, I do feel that some of the, there's clearly... uh, quite sensible let's get this into people as soon as we can because the sooner we're protected the more deaths we'll prevent but there's just a a wonder whether we've been a little bit faster than than we've been able to manage certainly in gp land because the instructions and that we've been having to sign up for things and bits of contract to say we'll do it and then what we've actually got to do then changes later and then it changes again and then it changes again and um we're all kind of feel as if we're spinning at the moment wanting to do the right thing um but suddenly having to change everything we're doing um and turn on a pin it's it's quite hard uh i think that i mean i I would hate it to be used as a jingoistic thing i think the thing that we can be proud of nationally is that we have a healthcare system that means this vaccine will go to the people who need it, who have the highest clinical priority. Um, And we have a system where nearly everybody in the country is registered with a GP. We can get the vaccine to everybody who wants it. And actually that's in marked contrast to some other places in the world. So for that reason, we should be really proud that it's Britain doing this. Thanks. And Nizreen, what's your feeling about the public mood? Um, I, like Helen said, I think it's difficult to tell. I, I, I'm seeing a lot of um, people saying, oh, well, let's just see how it goes. Um, you know, <laughs> with, with, I suppose, people like Matt being kind of the guinea pigs in their, <laughs> in their minds is that, you know, let's see how many people, you know, let's have 
let's have people vaccinated and see how it goes. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing quite a bit of that. But I think public communication, I think communication is key. And I think the understanding um, is not there. I, I mean, I think we need to really make it clear that herd immunity by vaccination is not going to be achieved soon uh, because that needs a lot of people to be vaccinated. Um, and, and, and the idea of the, of the groups that are prioritized is that you're trying to individually protect people who are vulnerable and also people like healthcare workers who are, you know, at high risk of exposure to, um, to the virus as well. Um, but that doesn't mean that everybody else is protected. And I think that is not coming through in kind of the public messaging that I'm seeing. Um, um, and, and, and we need to do better on that. Yeah. And do we feel, do you feel um, you've had enough information about the, the vaccine, what it is and, you know, how it works and, and the, 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 the trials data? I think we need more information. Um, um, obviously, you know, it's been um, looked at independently here in the UK and hence we have the rollout of the vaccine. Uh, but I think, you know, what is the disadvantage of publishing, um, you know, the trial data, and you know, you know, if anything else, from you know, you need you need the reassurance, and I think if you want a lot of the scientific community, the medical community, to really go for you know encouraging people to get the vaccine, I think a lot of uh, uh, of them us would like to see uh, more data. So I think that 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 should be really a, a, a good move, and I'm hoping this will happen in the next couple of weeks. And Helen, you were actually in one of the trials, weren't you? Sorry, I'll say that again. Sorry. Say that again. And Helen, you were actually in one of the trials. Yes, I'm um, in the Oxford vaccine trial. And actually, as far as data goes, I would really like to see a better analysis or more full analysis so we can look at the figures of the efficacy data. But I'm very, very relaxed about the, the safety data because we do know that this has been tested on hugely more people than almost any other drug that's come to market. So normal pre-testing of, a, of a, a medicine before it's licensed is somewhere between 300 and 3,000 um, people. We know that you know 20,000 plus people have, have had this vaccine. So I think we can be quite... Um, uh, confident in our reassurances to people about this being a safe vaccine, whether it is 95% effective in all the groups who are going to get, particularly the elderly that we're going to give it to. I, I, I don't know the answer to that because I haven't seen the figures. Um, but to, to in a certain extent, if it's slightly less than that, all the more reason why we want to encourage lots and lots and lots of people to have it. Mm. And how important will it be, you know, Matt lining up um, uh, to, to have his vaccine, how important will it be for public, the public to see healthcare professionals, you know, getting, getting up there and getting vaccinated? Yeah, well, I, well, I hope so. You know, the, the reason I'm doing it is, you know, for lots of reasons, it, it's to protect me because the effect, efficacy data is good and the safety profile is good it's so that i can go to work because we've already seen there's huge amounts of staff sickness in swansea near my hometown you know there's 700 nhs workers off sick because of isolation or covid and that delivering healthcare in that environment is so hard uh, you know the safety thing i've had lots of questions about safety and ultimately i've always said the biggest risk 
for the vaccine is me driving to the vaccine center. You know, we take risks every day. Getting in your car is a substantial risk, but there are benefits to doing it, which is why we do it. And it's the same with this. I think the Pfizer vaccine is actually in 43,000 people with a, a two-month follow-up, which is a short follow-up, but for initial safety data, that's great. You know, the big elephant in the room, I guess, in terms of efficacy is whether it prevents transmission. You know, that's a huge one. And that's not just for this mRNA vaccine. It's it's for many of the vaccines. And without that data, it is more complex to do this weighing and balancing exercise of risks and benefits. And so I, I hope ASAP we get some further information on whether it actually prevents transmission. I think... Um, I, I, I think safety is a big thing and, and Matt just talked about, I think that people are mostly concerned about safety and I think um, the data, um, well I suppose what we know already but hopefully what even will be released more uh, will reassure everybody on the safety. I think the effectiveness like Helen Matt said is um, and, you know so immunity how long even if it's effective how long it's effective for um, is, is more debated but I think people are probably mostly concerned about the safety and 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 I was um in fact my teenage son was debating it with somebody the other day and he was trying to uh, debate with somebody who said well, you know this might be harmful and we don't know and and he was telling that other person well we know for sure that COVID is bad it kills people we know now for sure it has the long-term <laughs> health effects um you know um it's very unlikely that the you know the vaccine you know even you know if there's any kind of I suppose um, disadvantage from having it to be on a any on a similar scale to the virus itself. So I think uh, people, I think people can, I think a safety um, a message um, needs to be reinforced. But also I think the bit about the effectiveness, um, you know, needs to be explained to people, and the unknown needs to be explained to people as well in terms of um, the effectiveness and the length um, of effectiveness, and you know, and the transmission. What Matt just said, absolutely. There was, there was some interesting um, questions about who should be ambassadors for this vaccine, who should be the role models. Um, and there was a front page spread on one of the newspapers of, of lots of older British people. Um, all of them were white. So then there was this long discussion on Twitter about, about, okay, who are the role models we really need out there? You know, actually we need people like, uh, well, Benny Henry's not that old, but you know, pe people and, and, and maybe um, Mata Jaffrey, you know, we need people who are, uh, and who come from other ethnicities within the UK also to be up there for their, for, for, so people can see, oh, well, here's somebody I know who looks like me and yeah, they're advocating the virus, the um, vaccine, not the virus, the vaccine. <laughs> um, well, so I'll go and get it. And I do think there's an awful lot of role modeling to be done. And it, yes, it can be the doctors and the scientists can do it and prove that we believe it. But I think it also needs to be ordinary people and the actors and singers and, and stars who go and, and um, say, yep, I'm having the vaccine. And how um, do you think we'll do as a country in terms of post post um, rollout monitoring, um, you know, capturing um, whatever adverse events may occur? Um, I have seen the um, latest information for, for patients. They've not put much out yet, but one that they have has got links to the yellow card system so that patients can report their own adverse events, which I think will be great. What what level of event people will will um, 
will register is a really interesting question. They've been warned about um, having a sore arm and maybe having a very mild fever for a couple of days. Um, and it's a question of what other things will people think are related to the vaccine and will report. It'd be really interesting to, to see what, um, you know, what is reported at the end of this. There is a system. How it'll work, I don't know. And there was also this thing that that GPs are going to be really, really busy. And actually, how do how do how do we fit into that reporting system? I don't know. Yeah, I I guess what would be also be nice to see before the big rollout is you know there is a predictable series of headlines or news reports or things that will happen when this vaccine gets rolled out. You know, someone who has had the vaccine will develop. COVID. And that's not because of the vaccine, that's because of timing and association and all the other things. Someone who had the vaccine will develop other problems and other conditions which will in their mind be linked to the vaccine and so on. So there's a really predictable series of news reports. I can almost see front headlines coming already. And this is just the nature of large volumes of people being treated this is maybe nothing whatsoever to do with the vaccine this may all be association but it would almost be nice to prepare the world and life and society and people for these things you know bad things happen to people every day uh, and just because you've had something be it an antibiotic or a vaccine or something else before it doesn't mean it's caused that so i think association and causation complexities will probably play out to be a big thing over the coming year. I think the, the other thing which is worth mentioning is obviously the media have jumped straight on onto the kind of old story of immunity passports again um, that we had at the start of the pandemic um, and there is um, a bit of confusion not cleared up by the media or even some of the politicians answering the questions about this COVID card. Um, that people are supposed to carry. So, so, so apparently this is a card just with a schedule for the immunization because you have more than one dose and which you normally do in other vaccines. You know, if you have children, you know that that will be recorded and the date for the next time for the next dose. Um, so it's just to clear that is, this is not an immunity passport in, um, in any way. Um, it, it, it's just a card which apparently has no identifiable information so it can't really prove uh, prove anything but 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 i understand the card has got some sort of um instruction on it which might be the cause for confusion i don't know if helena you've seen it or matt it says you have to carry it in your purse or wallet um so i think that's that's one of the things that i think the, people need you know really need clear um the, the whole procedure of the vaccine i think needs to be kind of you need to be not just infographics, you know, on the media and, you know, people need to go through it. All of these things need to be clear rather than open for kind of misinformations and rumours about things. There's a, I mean, there's a lot of lack of information out there. Um, and those of us who are trying to plan rolling out um, a, a vaccination programme, uh, it's been quite hard because um, people at NHS England are running very 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 hard trying to get documentation out to us but it's really difficult so for example we don't actually yet have we've been told that we have to have informed consent but we don't have any of the the forms or um we, there have to be consent forms actually filled in which is going to be quite a quite a task i think um because we want to get them done ahead of when people actually come for the vaccine because there's not really time to have a discussion 
at the time of having the vaccine. If they're going to have that, then patients need some good information. In fact, I've just seen this morning released last night or yesterday, there's the patient information leaflets, but it's all coming very, it's quite coming quite late on. And yes, there's a, there's a subset of people who are getting very hot, hot under the collar about the concept that they might be obliged to have a vaccine when they don't want one. Um, and it's kind of, you've got two groups of people at the moment. You've got the people who are desperate for the vaccine as soon as they can possibly have it. Um, and they're gonna have to wait because they're not yet in the priority groups. And there's another load of people who actually similarly are also mostly not in the priority groups who are desperate not to have the vaccine and are scared it's going to be forced on them in some way. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very odd situation that we're in. And one feels like saying to particularly some of the younger people, you know, just, just chill for a bit because no one's offering it to you uh, for quite a few months yet. Well, um, Matt, you can come back next week and tell us how it was and, and what the consent form looked like and and how you're feeling. I'm sure I'm sure it'll be you know you'll be really full of uh, good information. Yeah, and actually, you know, in secondary care so far, and this is for the staff. You know, I haven't seen the, the patient side of things, but it's been so far fairly easy, efficient. We've had information sent electronically. There was a simple booking process where we booked both appointments, actually the initial and the booster. Uh, obviously I haven't been there yet, so I can't, I can't comment on uh, how it's physically run, but actually that side of things has been okay. Um, you know, it's, it's early days and that may change, but so far that has been okay. And it's probably because the logistics of the storage and the thawing and all those other things is somewhat easier in secondary care because of those facilities to do so. And the big logistical challenge is going to be for residential care homes, for primary care, for the community, certainly for this uh, Pfizer vaccine, which needs to be stored at that very cold minus 80 temperature. I was going to talk, talk a little bit about the logistics of the care homes, because we've got a, a, a really interesting thing where we're being told that the priority group are residents in care homes, but we have no possibility of giving them the vaccine unless they can come to hospitals or to uh, GP practices. Because for the moment, we've got a, a really quite fragile vaccine. My understanding is the mRNA vaccine is really fragile once you've thawed it, okay? And when you have to mix it, you have to invert the vial very gently. You're not allowed to shake it. You just got to handle it with great care. And presumably that's why it doesn't have a license to be put in the back of your car in a cool box and taken to the care home. Um, so we can't take the vaccines to a care home at the moment. It may mean that they look again and they change the licensing, but at the moment on the current license, we can't do that. So effectively we can't vaccinate the group that are top of the list at the moment. We can do that the care home workers, obviously, but not the care home residents who can't come to us. Um, there is the view that they'll wait till the Oxford vaccine will be, you know, we're hoping that will come through in time to, to do the care home residents. We, we really hope so, because um, the adenovirus related vaccine is very much more robust. Um, and I think we'll be able to handle it a bit more like we handled the, the flu vaccine. So the, with the flu vaccine, I take a couple of vials out of the fridge and I put them in my doctor's bag and I cycle off to individual um, elderly house farm residents and give them their jab. Um, it would be great if we could do that with the uh, coronavirus vaccine, but it's we don't have that capacity yet. And of course, the flu vaccination is 
going on at the same time, but it has to be completely separate in terms of how it's being delivered, in terms of the implementation, the logistics. Indeed, and we only really heard about um, our the, the promised flu vaccination for the people aged between 50 and 65. If you remember, there was this um, a promise in, I think it was July this year, that flu vaccination would be expanded. But then we waited a long time to be told that there would be extra supplies and we could actually do it. So we're still vaccinating that cohort at the moment. And actually there's quite a lot of people who are aged 50 to 65 who want their flu vaccine. And um, we're still doing that. Uh, and we, we really, really, really can't mix those two up. And it's quite a big ask for our receptionist to try and all do, be booking people in for both um, programmes at the same time. The other thing that's um, certainly been taking up our thinking or at the BMJ, and, and I don't know whether it's been a big part of your week, but has been the whole discussion about mass testing in Liverpool and um, I guess also university students returning home uh, and the concerns about the accuracy of the lateral flow tests and the shifting narrative, which has been so fascinating to watch about the Liverpool um, initiative from initially being mass testing, was it screening or not? Why wasn't it properly done as a research project, a program with oversight? Um, if the if the lateral test is, as we think, you know, not terribly sensitive and therefore high numbers of false negatives, um, can it be used, as they're now saying, for people who then want to visit their relatives? Well, it seems high 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 false negatives would make that a bad idea. And then, of course, it's now being called case finding, which is. Um, a huge hammer to crack a nut of finding additional cases um, and what the marginal benefit of the lateral flow test is when you've got to do PCR on top. So I'm, I'm living and breathing this a bit, trying to make sense of it and trying to kind of be fair to the Liverpool programme, but also to, to, to try to get a sense of, does it make sense to roll this out across the country on the basis of the Liverpool pilot? And I have to say, I, I really believe we haven't, you know, it could be an enormous costly waste of money when other things are more important. But that's a long introduction to ask you what your thoughts are and whether you feel that we've, you know, we've done the right thing with the mass testing programme. Nizreen, what's your thinking? Um, I mean, I think in principle, you know, testing is a good thing. This is something we've been calling for all along from the start. Um, I, I think there are lots of issues, as you pointed out, Fee. I think definitely the main, one of the main concerns is that people have it, well, as a, as a kind of a safe passport again, you know, you have a negative test and then you feel you don't have to stick to any of, of the rules and you can, you know, mix with people. And I think that that's something, again, needs very proper communication in, in terms of a negative test doesn't mean anything almost really. You have to do what you have to do It's the positive ones that mean more um, and that's a difficult slightly difficult message to do but I think again it's about um, the whole pandemic what we do for pandemic testing is one element it's a big it's a massive complex intervention and I think testing needs to be seen as um, as an element in that because I, I, we know that testing has absolutely no effect if it's not followed by the isolation bit. Um, um, so that obviously needs to go, the, the actual intervention is the isolation rather than the testing. The testing is kind of the tool to get there. Uh, but also I think in terms of you know change um, in people's life in terms of adapting their behaviors, not necessarily having 
uh, enforced restrictions, but actually adapting behaviors. And I think it's, I I do think it's amazing that now, um, you know, you know, you find these, you know, different behaviors and people are, are adapting to them and, and, and also enjoying, you know, their life as well and doing some activities while adapting for these. So I think this is the thinking that testing is one element while you're still doing all the other things that you're supposed to do to reduce transmission. Um, I, th- I think that's the message. And when I see testing, mass testing discussed, it's kind of discussed as a, as a, on its own, the only intervention. <laughs> Helen. I mean, I think it's, it was interesting to hear, having read quite a lot of really quite angry stuff about, about mass testing, and particularly about the opportunity cost and how much money it might cost. Probably in the BMJ, I guess. <laughs> a lot of it. <laughs> um, but actually, uh, listening to the, um, the interview you did with Callum Semple, it was interesting to hear his positives that might come out of it. And one of the things that was interesting, which I don't think necessarily has to be for mass testing, but just this um, opportunity they had while doing it, which was to take tests to people who really needed them. Uh, because the initial COVID testing was really set up, you had to have a car. Uh, it wasn't equally distributed. It was really difficult for people on low incomes and in deprived areas to get to have a test. And one of the things the Liverpool mass testing did was to bring the testing to the people. Um, and lots of people who didn't actually want to have tests uh, went very willingly to, and, and, and had them. They just hadn't been able to before, which, which I thought was an interesting um, equalising effect of the, the, the mass testing. And I do think it depends how you frame it. So if you use testing, for example, as one more thing that may make it slightly safer for older people in care homes to have visitors, yes, they're still gonna be wearing their PPE, but they're also gonna have two lateral flow tests before they get to see their their, their relative. And they're not gonna be 100%, it's not gonna screen out everybody, but it's about balancing risks and harms. And what are the harms of nobody getting to see their elderly relatives at all in care homes? versus the having an imperfect test, still taking lots of precautions, but it lets you just change that balance of of risk and benefit. And and I, I can see quite a lot of that. I'm Tom Nolan from Deep Breath In, the BMJ's podcast for GPs. In our latest episode, we talk about insomnia and those consultations where suggesting sleep hygiene and CBTI doesn't go down very well. We delve into the causes of insomnia, where sleep expert Lauren Hale tells us about the social determinants of sleep. And are you willing to prescribe benzodiazepines and Z drugs for insomnia? Mike Kelleher offers his tips for avoiding dependence and how to help patients wean off benzodiazepines. To listen, search for Deep Breath In on your podcast app. I'm very interested to hear from you, Matt, about how people are on intensive care in terms of the treatments you're offering. We've just published a lot in the BMJ about remdesivir, which was one of the hopes for, for really sick people. Um, to get better and it's obviously proved to be you know it's proving to be really not quite so good 
can you tell us how things are in intensive care and what you're moving towards? Well, this secondary wave is unsurprisingly very different from wave one, but different in lots of ways. The patients we are seeing in intensive care are sicker. More of them are sadly not surviving. And the way the disease behaves and acts is different. And I think that's for lots of reasons. We didn't have steroid use ubiquitously in wave one. So patients, when they come into hospital, are now given early appropriate steroids, thanks to the recovery trial and, and other trials, such as REMAP-CAP. So that's great. It means we are getting them post-steroid. We're also self-selecting, of course, that those people who fail to respond to that first-line therapy. There are also lots of hardworking respiratory physicians and medical physicians who are using things like non-invasive ventilation and CPAP on the wards. So we're also getting those patients who have failed even those you know, kind of critical care interventions in many ways. And we may be admitting people with more comorbidities who are more who are older, for example. So the patient is very different. And what that's resulted in are mortality rates which are higher. And that's reflected in the amazing national data from ICNARC, you know, started by David Harrison, Kathy Rowan, for example. And it's great that we've got this data set for intensive care survival from ICNARC. But what we're missing is the bigger picture. You know, we don't have good data from a hospital-wide system on a disease. And so when you're looking at subselected groups, by themselves, it's really hard to disentangle those complexities. So I think one thing that has come out of this secondary wave is I think we need to start considering diseases through the whole system rather than just in the area in which they are treated. You know, intensity without walls has been talked about a lot, but it also needs to be data without walls. Actually, the overall survival for COVID is much better. But of course, we are seeing that selection of patients who won't do so well. And remdesivir has complicated it even more. You know, viral drugs have been odd. They've been a huge success for chronic viral diseases, such as HIV and hepatitis C, you know, which is a remarkable turnaround. But for acute viral diseases like Tamiflu in, in flu and remdesivir now here in, in COVID, it hasn't been great. Um, and I th think that's because the problems of acute viral infections are not necessarily the virus itself. It's the effect it has on your body, which has already started. And that interaction, whilst maybe in the chronic phase, it's the virus itself, which is the problem. So the advice now is that we aren't using remdesivir uh, for patients on the wards or in intensive care. And that's a result of the new meta-analysis published that it's probably ineffective but so-called negative trials are actually helpful as well. You know, people see negative trials as bad. Actually, in ICU, it's great because the opportunity costs of using these drugs, the time taken to deliver them, the costs to give them, we can use that for other things which we do know that works. So actually, even these so-called negative trials, which we've had a lot in intensive care over the years, it's good because we can provide efficient, time-efficient, cost-efficient and impactful interventions which work. And Matt, what other things, therefore, in addition to dexamethasone, are you um, using uh, in, in terms of actual medical treatments? 
Well, the big story this month has been the use of toxiluzumab, which is an IL-6 uh, antagonist. So, you know, it's been used in other treatments in inflammatory conditions. We use it in our hospital for treating the adverse effects related to cytokine release storm in CAR-T therapy, for example. Uh, and this has been tested in a number of trials, but in the ICU trial, the REMAP-CAP trial, it was actually stopped early because of a perceived benefit in the immune modulating arm, which wasn't just toxiluzumab, it was others too. So that's left us in a slightly tricky position that we think immune modulating treatments are beneficial, but we don't quite know which ones and we don't quite know how. And so we are continuing to recruit into trials to answer those questions is is the bottom line. There was initially a suggestion that this drug should be used outside of clinical trials more routinely, um, but we are very much of the position it should continue to be used in high quality randomized trial trials. And the other big interventions to keep an eye out for, you know, the recovery trial and remap cap is changing its arms all the time. But in ICU, we are looking at whether using empirical anticoagulation things like heparin and other drugs is helpful because we know the incidence of thromboembolic disease in critical illness COVID is very high. So that's really one of the big um, results that we, we want to see. And Helen, at your end of the spectrum, you're, you'll be seeing patients or your colleagues will be seeing patients who've, who've been in hospital and are coming out and, and, and recovering. How, how, um, how is that uh, at your end of the line? In terms of the things that we have for them therapeutically, um, we don't have a, a huge amount still to offer to help people um, get better. Um, in general practice, one of the things I find myself saying many, many times over is that your body is better at mending itself than I am at mending it. So we probably need to to wait and, and you know, um, look after yourself and look after you in all sorts of physical ways like sleeping and eating and taking gentle exercise and, and hope that you will continue to improve. But we don't have, I don't think, any effective medication for the longer phase, for the recovery phase. Despite the recovery trial, <laughs> that longer recovery from... Uh, Nuzreen, you've been, uh, as I think people know, uh, 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 someone who's suffered with the, the long COVID symptoms and um, and also been working on trying to understand more about it with the, the diagnostic criteria. Can you tell us where you've got to on that? I, I think I think there's been lots of progress in long COVID in that it's much more widely known. The government has put money into things like the long COVID clinics um, and also in research. There's been a big 20 million called my NIHR MRC um, recently on research into long COVID, which will hopefully answer a lot of these questions. Uh, but I think in terms of the diagnostic criteria, the big question still remains, the big issue still remains that the people who've had it early on um, and not were not hospitalized, did not have a test. Um, some of them having antibody tests, you know, many months after that might be negative as well. And we know there's evidence um, of waning antibodies. Um, so, so this is clear. So they have no evidence of infection. And I think um, the, the the criteria of referral. So, so now there are long COVID clinics opening um, and some GPs, um, you know, are referring to them or will be referring to them. But again, these criteria are not 
standardized, they're not universal, they're not uniform, and it's very much um, so. There are two, two kind of two gateways of uncertainty. First is whether the GP themselves think that person has got long COVID if they haven't um, got um, the lab confirmation, or even if they have because they're presenting very many months after, and and you know they might be, you know, the GP might think this is something coincidental rather than due to COVID. Um, so that's there's a diagnosis by the GP, um, and then there are once GP things that this patient may have suspected long COVID, they then have to go through some criteria to refer to a long COVID clinic. And again, you know, that's not something that is universal or standardized. And, and I think a lot of people are trying to put a lot of work into trying to make this a fair and inclusive process. But again, I think we need we need some collective data research into into um, not having not really having a, a postcode almost a postcode lottery in, in, in long COVID. Um, so to, and to what extent um, is it going to be helpful for people to have, uh, you know, the investigations that will show organ damage? Um, and, you know, is that going to be helpful to them to really know that they've had this and also what the prognosis might be? I think be? I... I suppose the question is how how far should one investigate? How far should people be investigated? Um, just, well, you know, in terms of what Helen was saying, I, you know, I completely support that. There's no um, known treatment at the moment. I mean, one of the big questions is, can you stop the progression long COVID? Can you give maybe treatments in the early phase? And, and that's maybe a, a place for trials. Uh, but I think, um, it, you know, it, it, the investigations is always, I've always maintained is the key thing because you really don't want to miss treatable pathology. That's the thing. Um, so if you jump straight into rehab and, you know, thinking about, you know how how you can heal i think that's the issue i think i think there needs to be investigated how extensive they are obviously again a resource thing uh and that needs to be systematically looked at um you know and and there needs to be some guidelines and um, um and there will be guidelines uh, i don't know how far, in terms of the nice guidelines i don't know how detailed they'll be in terms of exactly what investigations yeah. are indicated but thrombosis for example is a main concern like what matt was saying you know uh people having you know uh, chest pains for example chest tightness breathlessness definitely need to exclude uh thromboembolic events um in, in them for example or, or cardiac events etc helen did you did you i was only going to say, apart from excluding the things we can treat, I think there may also be benefit in showing there is a problem, even if we don't at the moment have um, a, a solution to it, because I think many people with long COVID, what they suffer from mostly is, is, is doubt, doubt from other people, and even their own self-doubt, what is actually going on? Am I really ill or should I just pull myself together? Um, and actually, even if we don't have a, at the moment, something that will mend damage to the lungs, if we can see that damage to the lungs, say, yeah, absolutely, we can see what's happened um, and we know why you're breathless. I think that's really useful um, for patients. I think that's true, except that many long COVID patients are coming back with normal uh, standard investigations like the chest x-ray and, and bloods. Um, and 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 not many are getting the extensive investigations that are showing the damage, like MRIs, for example. So I think it's 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 great with this caveat because it could turn against the patients. You come back with normal chest X-ray and bloods, and there you go, you've got nothing. It's anxiety. It's in your. That's oh, story. Absolutely. There was some really interesting stuff recently from um, one of the radiology researchers in Oxford using um, xenon. Mm -hmm. 
transfer um, and some special sorts of imaging that did actually show up damage that wasn't visible on other modalities of imaging. Um, and I suppose it's that, that sort of thing I'm thinking of, that we ought to carry on looking to see if we can find, even if we don't know how we're going to fix, because finding is, is important both in terms of the progress of our medicine and working out how we might fix it, but also in its own right, psychologically, to, to find the thing that is wrong is quite important for patients. Uh, and, and what research um, do we know that's going on, Nizreen, in terms of sort of cohort studies um, around the um, extent of organ damage and, and, the, and to try and get us a sense of prognosis? Um, uh, as I said, there, there's been a, a, a call um, for big mega research studies uh, now, um, and the decisions on these um, studies will hopefully be announced in January. Um, so we will probably be something uh, along the lines of uh, the FOSP study, which follow up, you know, non-hospitalized patients. Um, but, you know, um, the call is, as I said, 20 million, but actually it specifically says we want big studies um, rather than, you know, um, many, many small studies. Um, so I think um, I think there are smaller studies going on, but I, I think, um, you know, the next few months, hopefully some big cohorts will be established um, with, with the investigations part as well. I guess just projecting into the future, one thing that slightly worries me is that if this service provision for things like these long COVID clinics is not built into some structure, there will be disparity. And it seems like an area where private medicine or private health rather than medicine perhaps will step in, which I think would be, you know, such a disservice in many ways you know covid has already disproportionately affected people of different socioeconomic backgrounds and then if they're unable to access help because of those means you know that would be just an insult to injury really so i really hope alongside the big research projects you know, a level playing field of good access for people uh, will will be there because the, the last thing we need is you know, more reports in the BMJ of non-evidence-based interventions, testing, other things, exploiting groups of people who, who may have diseases such as that. Uh, absolutely. Just a quick point to say, I think the main one of the main reasons people also seek healthcare who have long COVID symptoms is um, employment and you know sick, you know having time off sick, um, and and affording to be um, off sick. So I think there are all sorts of socioeconomic issues around um, long COVID that needs to be integrated in in whatever care is, is is provided to ensure there's no widening inequalities. Because I can see. The inequalities even maybe even a bigger issue than the inequalities in mortality to be honest on the long run in terms of um, that so we're heading towards christmas only a few weeks to go and people are sort of overdoing the whole christmas thing in a, in a state of um hope that that this might be a sign of normality on its way uh, what do we feel about how the government has uh, handled this the messaging and the and the rules that they put out helen I'm a, I'm a little bit worried. I have to, I have to say that that actually we're going to be into our third or tertiary wave of COVID after Christmas um, because uh, the intergenerational gathering that happens around Christmas is kind of the ultimate super spreading event. Um, lots of people travelling uh, and lots of people 
meeting up and they've have said that we shouldn't meet up you know more than three families three households together but that's a lot of of spreading um and i i'm concerned about the messaging that's gone out from government with a little nhs logo on it as if this is what the nhs has decided is safe too with really the implication that the virus is going to take a five-day break so it's fine um and i think particularly with the with the vaccine just around the corner we, we could have said keep your nerve hang on let's let's have some days off later in the year um the other religious groups weren't able to celebrate their um religious special days um actually we can tone down christmas too uh, because I am really worried that these Christmas bubbles are going to end up in Matt's care uh, later on in January. Matt, what are your views and, and what are you going to be doing for Christmas? I always like to think of complex questions in terms of a exam question, a multiple choice exam question. And if the question was, during a secondary wave of a global pandemic, when there's a vaccine in months or weeks, would you like to do the, one of the following? And option A would be intergeneration meeting with alcohol, food and board games. That probably wouldn't be the choice I would take in an exam. Uh, although I, you know, I feel the pain of four nations trying to come together and decide those things. But, you know, if that was a, an exam question, you wouldn't choose that option. That's clear. At the same time, we practice patient-centred care and shared decision-making. So I've tried to do that for Christmas, but we are practising parent-centred care. So, you know, my parents and, and, and other family members on the other side, we've given them the information. We've said, look, there are real risks here. They're the ones at risk, actually, you know, more, more so than us. Uh, and I can't impose my views on them. You know, I think it has to be them to decide. So we're practicing parent-based decision-making. What that decision is going to be is still uh, slightly up in the air but it certainly wouldn't be the answer I would choose on an MCQ exam if that was option A. Nisreen. Uh, yeah, I think um, Christmas bubbles, um, I think people still need to be careful over Christmas. Um, you know, obviously, obviously it's a time where people like, you know, if they're getting together with people in, in closed um, spaces at homes, um, you know, it's really important to um, still be careful. And I just want to stress the, a particular message about ventilation that, you know, if you're in a closed space, you know, cold outside, you know, um, uh, for a long time with other people, please, you know, the ventilation message needs to be out there still that, you know, these enclosed spaces need to be ventilated. Um, and um, so opening windows and doors um, to try to try and get get the air in um, whilst enjoying other people's company. You don't think that message has got across about airborne transmission in the UK? No, I don't think so. so. No, I don't think so. People may disagree, but I certainly don't think it's been, um, um, it's a hand face um, and space, isn't it? And and recently, I think there's been some talk about the ventilation aspect and, and even at schools. I mean, I sent my daughter to the school wrapped up today and I said, because my understanding is they've been opening the windows uh, in classrooms because obviously loads of children in classrooms, no masks during the class time. Um, and she says, no, the teachers stopped because we were freezing and now we're not, we're not opening the windows anymore. 
Uh, so, you know, you know, that needs to keep being reinforced. It's very difficult, especially with children, but, you know, that needs to keep, keep the information needs to be out there all the time about this. It's really important, the ventilation aspect, I think, and it's been missed a bit. Helen? I think it is very difficult. I think there's also a slight problem that ventilation means being under mat's care and ITU, and it also means opening the windows. <laughs> you can get all sorts of confusion. But for our family, so um, my daughter's a, a junior doctor, but she's very keen to come and, and see us um, if, we'll, if we'll have her. And we're making all sorts of putative plans for Christmas dinner, as long as it's not actually raining, is having the French windows open and somebody has an outdoor um, Christmas dinner and some people have an indoor Christmas dinner so that we don't breathe the same air. Um, certainly with my older, my elderly parents, if they're gonna come at all, some of us are gonna have to be outside. <laughs> Thanks so much, everyone. A final question to you all. Um, what have you been reading? What have you found most interesting in, 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 in what you've come across in the past week? Matt? I've been reading about the history of the MRA, mRNA vaccine, actually, because although it's been muted as you know something new, in fact, it's got a 30-year scientific history. So I've been trying to dig into that. And you know, like all new treatments, it, it's, it's got actually a much longer history than, than we think. Nizreen? Yeah, so I read, um, I think yesterday I read a piece by, um, in the newspaper, um, where they interviewed um, Professor Neil Ferguson um, about his um, experience. And it was, it was a nice, well, it, it was, an, it was, it was good to read because he was basically touching on um, all the attention, you know, you know, the media attention that he got. Um, and, 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 and it was quite very, very overwhelming. And, um, I mean, he says things, um, you know, you know, around his, he had bots kind of bombarding his email accounts uh, with over a million emails a day from late March onwards. And he found the unpleasant messaging uh, very emotionally debilitating. And I think a lot of, a lot, a lot of uh, us in science and public health can relate to that because there's been this massive attention and people wanting to um, kind of <laughs> hear what we have to say. So a lot of media attention. And I think um, that has been uh, a quite, it can be quite in intimidating for people, particularly with the negative messaging, you know, around lockdown, et cetera. And I wonder if this is a factor where um, some, some people who have got really very important things to say, maybe don't come forward um, and, and, and say them easily because of that, you know, media attention. Really fascinating. Thanks, Nisreen. Helen. I'm really sorry it sounds very nerdy, but I've been spending a lot of time reading and then reading again because it changed and then reading again because it's changed again, the contract to do with how we deliver the COVID vaccine, because you turn your back for five minutes and they've brought out another version which changes your plans. I'm glad someone's reading it, Helen, because uh, that's what that's what we need. <laughs> I don't want to have to be that person. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed to all three of you. Thanks to Nisri Nawan, Matt Morgan and Helen Salisbury. As always, we want to cover the issues that matter to you, our listeners. So do let us know via social media if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or a specific question we could answer. We'll be coming back weekly with these Second Wave podcasts. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Fee Godley and I'll be back next week. Until then, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>